It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number two in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, February the 8th. First, I talk to Steve Layton, Australia's forefather of furniture. Steve Layton has his sights set on the reshaping the sofa industry. Through his innovative new co-venture spanning Australia, Italy and China, he's making Italian luxe furniture available to the many by delivering top-quality, heritage-rich Italian sofas for one-third of the usual price through his new venture, Sofa Brands. And then I talk to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver about what market trends we should be watching out for in 2019. But first, let's talk to Steve Layton. Well, Steve Layton, tell us about the Layton Group and Sofa Brand. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Uh, will do, Leon. Th- um, th- thanks for having me on the show today. Um, okay, the Leighton Group, um, we've been in the furniture industry since 1990. Um, we started up in Hong Kong um, and we shifted down to Australia in 1993 and I went out on my own in 1998 and set up the group um, and we've been in the industry since then, um, from the early days right through to uh, you know, the current disruption that's happening in the industry right now. Uh, so you uh, you actually set up in Hong Kong, didn't you, in 1990? We did initially, yes. We um, we uh, set up a trading company there and we, we sort of got into furniture by accident in a way. Um, you know, we, we were approached by various Australian retailers, some of them still exist, some of them don't. Um, and we just sort of developed the business from there. Um, I became focused on that and, yeah, set up in 98 
on myself and by myself and focused on on furniture. And basically, because you're in Hong Kong, you can develop the China's production and export of furniture to Australia, can't you? Correct. Well, well that that was, you know, sometimes timing is the is the most important thing. Um, and we were we were right on the cutting edge of when China was really opening up um, early nineties, and furniture was just starting to develop. Obviously, the quality was 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 exceptionally bad. Um, certain factories were only making a lot of casting and extrusion. There really wasn't anything creative. Um, but we we worked with a lot of factories from the early days and developed that business through to what it is now, which is, you know, a lot of the product you're getting out of China is as good as as good as anywhere in the world. Right, right. I mean, what one of the issues I've noticed with the furniture industry, well, in Australia, is is that uh, sure. Uh, there's been a lot, a lot of uh, issues here because prices have gone down, but so has quality as well. And now uh, it's very uh, much a absolutely. race to the bottom. It's a very much a race to the bottom, isn't it? It, it is. That, that's a term that I've been using um, a lot over the last couple of years because it's it's got to a point where I believe, um, and you know, b- being in this industry for the last thirty years, seeing where it, it is now is is. It's disappointing in a way because furniture has almost become a disposable commodity. Now, hey, it's been great for the consumer that the prices have been driven down, but where does it actually stop? And, and what the situation we're facing now is that the only way to keep discounting and keep reducing retail prices uh, is to reduce the quality. And you can see that happening now where um, a lot of these products that, that are sold in Australia don't even last through, through the warranty period, which is really disappointing. How much is IKEA to blame for this? Um, well, I, I have a view, um, and it may be incorrect and probably figures would prove me wrong, but I have a view that IKEA does not sell all that much what I call furniture in Australia. I, I believe IKEA seems to focus – sorry, seems to do very well in categories like homewares and rugs and lighting and, and knickknacks in their marketplace area, but – and bookcases, obviously, and chest of drawers. But when it comes to sofas and upholstery and corners and beds and and mattresses, I, I personally don't feel that they have a huge percentage of the market. Um, but obviously, the whole knockdown, price-driven, you know, volume manufacturing, driving those retail prices down, ha- has obviously had effect on the Australian market because people like Amar Furniture and Harvey Norman and and fantastic furniture obviously have had to meet those price points so um it certainly had an impact well that would mean though that margins have dropped and it was also mean uh suppliers aren't making that much money either exactly um certainly margins you know from when from when i started dealing with the furniture industry back in you know the the early to mid 90s um i won't quote margins but but they were significantly higher than they are now um and it really is a, a, a it really is a squeeze now for these retailers to actually hit those acceptable um, gross margins because the, the market's almost dictating the retail price. So you're almost working backwards to what your factory cost needs to be, and sometimes factories just cannot meet those targets. So what do they do? They reduce the quality of the foam, or they reduce the the the, the quality of the timber, or the width of the timber bracing, or They'll use a cheaper grade leather, or they'll use a, um, a, a cheaper PVC. So, but eventually, that comes to a point where that the, the sofa really isn't 
of merchantable quality. And, and that's what I am finding really hard to accept because it, it comes to a point where the hat, that has to stop and the race actually has to start back to the mid and back, back, to, back, back to the top eventually. And, and that's what, what, what I'm trying to do. So how is your company, Sofa Brand, disrupting the furniture market here? Okay, um, I, I'd, um, I think disruption is used a lot these days um, where, where probably innovation in a way is probably a better term to, to, to describe for brands. What, what, we've, what we've actually done is we've had relationships with a lot of Italian manufacturers over the years. Um, my partner in China um, and I came up with a, an idea mid last year that we would approach some key retailers in China and say, hey, let's do a partnership, a three-way win-win-win partnership between Sofa Brands, your retail chain in China, and the Italian manufacturers. So we actually pulled a deal together where Calia Italia, which is one of the most famous Italian Sofa Brands, has signed an agreement with Derucci Retail in China, who has 3,000 stores. So it's a win-win for obviously both of those companies because the China middle class wants brands and wants Italian brands, wants quality. 3,000 stores. 3,000 stores, stores, believe it or not, and they turn over – and 3,000 and counting. um, And they they turn over about 34 billion RMB. So it's a significant business and and very scalable too. Um, So the the upshot of that was that part of pulling that deal together was that Sofa Brands had the manufacturing rights in China. So obviously now we can make the Italian brands in China leverage off that volume within China and export around the world. So I'm I'm in a position where you know we're obviously talking to to the key retailers in Australia right now, and we, we um, we're in a position where we can offer Italian quality, uh, Italian you know lifetime warranty on frames. Um, the, the 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 manufacturing standards of 60, 70 years of manufacturing heritage, but obviously made in China with the advantages that that brings. So cost is low. Cost is significant, correct. Cost is significantly lower than obviously made in Italy, um, and it's extremely low for the quality of the the end product. So if you're offering a lifetime warranty on a on a sofa pair uh, at very aggressive retail pricing. Obviously, that's um, that's something that, that would be very attractive for for the consumer. Right, I, and I believe you're looking at uh, a custom design your own sofa sofa business. Is that right? We yes, we are. We are. That's something which um, we've we've been sort of looking at doing for a number of years, but it, it was never actually possible to do. Um, you know, obviously complexities in supply chain. Um, you know, costs of stocking material where you can actually order in ones and twos that just wasn't something that the supply chain could do but as part of this italian china export deal um we've been able to get a commitment from the italian brands that that the australian consumer can now order genuine italian made sofas in any design any configuration any leather colour, um, so it's 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 like ordering a a unique piece of furniture which is delivered white glove to their home within twelve weeks at, at significant um, discounts compared to what a, a normal Italian sofa would be retailing for in Australia. 
So we feel that's disruptive for, for sure. Um, and it's something that really hasn't been offered before. So we, we are looking at obviously offering that service through to some of the key retailers, but also um, we'll be launching an online platform, e-commerce platform to, um, to actually develop that. So, so very excited about that. Very excited. So uh, how many sales would you get from online from just something like that? Well, we, you know, we, we have high hopes for that. Obviously, there are, um, uh, there are still limitations in selling in furniture online. Um, you know, let's face it, it's, that's reality. Um, there are a lot of people who want to sit on it and feel it and, and um, you know, jump about on it and actually get a feel for, for what they're going to be buying. But we feel that if the, if the deal is right and the quality is right, and the design and the, and, the, and, the, and the heritage, you know, if, if, the, if the factory has 60, 70 years of heritage, I think the consumer will have confidence in that product that they're buying um, and the fact that it, it, it will be a unique piece. So um, pro- most probably every single uh, Italian sofa that would be ordered through this model would be a totally unique piece of furniture. Um, so, yeah, we, we want to be one of the, 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 the companies that actually – puts confidence into the consumer to buy top quality furniture online for significantly less than they would buy um, bricks and mortar. Well, Steve Layton, it's delightful talking to you and it's fascinating listening to what uh, Layton Group is doing and what Sofa Brands is doing and uh, we watch this space with great interest and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks for your time. And now let's talk to economist Shane Oliver. Well, Shane Oliver, uh, on the face of it, financial markets seem to sense trouble on Christmas Eve. The S&P 500 index hit uh, the 20% threshold for a bear market. and uh, But a uh, few experts see a recession, but signs of a slowing economic growth are piling up. Uh, what are your forecasts for the market this year? We see this year as a better year for markets. Um, I don't think it's going to be straight up. We've seen a good start to the year, but there's probably still a few issues that could cause volatility. Um, it's quite common after a 20% fall in the US share market to see some sort of uh, retests and uh, backing and filling. It's very rare to have a sort of a deep V decline like we saw into December and then straight up again. Um, so I think there will be some sort of setbacks along the way. There's still issues about trade, economic growth, um, to be resolved, there's political uncertainty around Donald Trump and so on, um, uncertainty about China. So I, I think there'll be a few setbacks along the way and maybe a retest of those December lows, hopefully not that quite that low though. Um, but I think this will be a better year for the simple reason we don't see a global recession, we don't see a US recession anytime soon. Uh, yes, we've seen a slowdown in growth, but we saw slowdowns in growth back in 2015, 16 and also around 2011 but they weren't associated with global recession at the time. I I just don't think the the conditions are in place for a US or a global recession. Consequently, if uh, investors have to come to the view, well, we're not going to have a recession after all, maybe it's a few years down the track, but we're not there yet, then uh, share markets are still reasonably cheap, even around these levels. We've still got an environment of pretty easy monetary conditions globally. In fact, the Federal Reserve in the US is now pausing its interest tightening cycle, which is appropriate, and we might see some easing in Europe. And of course, we're also seeing stimulus in China. Um, so I think uh, this is will set up for a better year. And out of interest, um, 
this is Chinese New Year, and apparently uh, uh, this year, I think it's the year of the pig, is normally a good one for Asian markets and also global markets. So hopefully that's the case. But of course, there's no reliability on that one. But fundamentally, I think it's a, it's a it's an environment which should point to OK returns from investment markets. Uh, but uh, surely, uh, I mean, the market last year uh, had a lot of volatility. Volatility underscored much of a 2018 market. Uh, do you see, and that was after an unusually placid 2017. Do you see the volatility continue? I think the reality is the volatility will continue. 2017 was very unusual because we had an environment of improving economic news globally and, of course, the tax cuts and deregulation occurring in the US. And the noise around President Trump wasn't particularly negative. Um, But, of course, that low volatility, um, if you look back through history, years of low volatility are often followed by years of higher volatility. So, in a sense, it wasn't that surprising that we saw volatility creep in as we went through 2018, and of course that became intense by the time we got to the end of the year. The other aspect is that we're further through the broad economic cycle um, than we were, I guess, a few years ago. You know, we, we, yeah, there's, there's less spare capacity in the US, for example. Uh, that's obviously evident in the labour market with unemployment down around 4% and wages growth picking up. So that that always creates a bit of uncertainty, you know, at what point the Fed will come back and start raising interest rates again. So that issue is still there. And geopolitics is still an issue going forward as well. So that will cause ongoing volatility. Um, but I don't think it will be volatility of the uh, of the negative sort to the same degree that it was in 2018. I think with uh, share markets a lot cheaper, uh, with um, interest rate or monetary policy perhaps less threatening than it was last year, and that should create an environment where uh, where shares do better despite volatility continuing. Now, earnings are the catalyst that can drive stock prices higher, and uh, uh, S&P 500 earnings growth accelerated in 2018, thanks in large part to Trump's tax cuts. But how do earnings play into the stock market forecast for 2019? Well, the reality is that earnings this year, earnings growth this year will be more moderate than it was last year. Last year, earnings growth was given a boost by Donald Trump's tax cuts, and that added uh, somewhere between 5 to 10 percentage points to US earnings growth. And of course, that peaked, you know, we saw that impact peak around the middle of last year with earnings growth well in excess of 20 percent. That's now falling out of the numbers, and this year, earnings growth in the US is more likely to be around 5 percent or so. Um, but 5% earnings growth, I mean, you'd call that a, well, we've seen the peak in earnings growth. Some people use the term peak earnings, um, but often when they say peak earnings, they're referring to peak earnings growth. If we're seeing peak earnings, then you'd be a lot more concerned if the actual level of earnings were peaking and we're now going into an earnings downturn or earnings recession. That's more of a concern. But if earnings growth slows, from, say, 20%, which was anticipated in the huge gains we saw in share markets in 2017, if earnings growth slows from that in excess of 20% number down to around 5%, then I think share market can still rally in that environment. Um, and we're already seeing evidence that the earnings growth is slowing down. It was apparent in the, uh, the, the results we've seen so far this year, so far this um, reporting season in the US, where we're about halfway through, a bit more than halfway through, um, earnings growth has slowed down to around 16% or thereabouts. 
but companies are still surprising on the upside, both regarding earnings and sales. So the earnings reporting season we've seen has been nowhere near as negative as the market was starting to worry late last year. And uh, I mean, the US-China trade dispute has put pressure on the global economy and the stock market itself. Uh, how do you see that playing out? Uh, that pro- probably will have a way to go yet. I think it was a big factor last year in causing the uncertainty because even though the actual implemented tariffs were relatively minor, businesses uh, started to worry, both in the US and China, businesses started to worry that uh, you know, there was a lot more coming down the track and that was consistent with what Donald Trump kept telling us. Um, But I think as time's gone on, Donald Trump has seen that this could be a factor, obviously affecting the share market and also affecting US economic growth. The last thing he wants is a long, deep bear market and a US recession going through this year because it would almost certainly mean he would have no chance of getting re-elected last year. History has shown that when unemployment is rising uh, significantly in the US that presidents don't get re-elected and their party doesn't get returned. So his focus has shifted. Last year he had more time on his side. This year uh, he has less time on his side. He needs to keep the US economy going. Therefore, I think ultimately he's motivated to to wrap this um, trade dispute up with China. And likewise, I think the Chinese are also motivated to do the same. They don't want to see this dragging on forever because their their economy was slowing down. So both sides are pretty motivated here to get this uh, thing fixed up. Can they make it? Will they reach agreement by March the 1st? Um, I'm not so sure. I think they might have to extend the deadline. Um, But I do think at some point in the next few months, they will reach a deal on this. Right. Okay. So uh, in summary, what should stock investors be doing now? Well, I guess it depends on their time horizon. If they're a long-term investor, they just they just stick to their knitting and uh, invest for the long term. And, of course, uh, when the markets have come down like they are now relative to their high points last year, the Aussie market's still lower than it was at the high point, then uh, you look around for value, parts of the market that have been sold down too hard, and maybe you top up in those areas. But basically, uh, um, you, you know, you stick to your approach. If you're a more... Um, short-term focused investor, then you may take the view that, well, markets have had a good run-up from their lows in December um, and you might might wait for a pullback in markets before allocating more into the share markets, both in Australia and internationally. Um, so I think it depends on your time horizon. If you're not uh, focused too much in the short term, then wouldn't worry about it, look for value, um, stick to your approach, stick to your long-term strategy. But if you're uh, a bit more focused on uh, getting the timing right, then you could perhaps wait for a pullback to occur before allocating more into the markets. But I think the point is that the longer-term bull market is still in place, even though you could argue there was a short-term bear market in the US last year. Um, But we're not at that point yet where we see a recession coming, and that is the critical issue here. All of the major bear markets historically – in the US, which have gone on for a long time, and the 87 crash did go on for a long time, it was just a few months. But all of the major ones where you have shares come down 20% and then a year later they're down another 20, 30, 40%, all of those have been associated with the US recession. At this stage, it's still hard to see that. Even though some economists have predicted a US recession in 2020, but then that's a long way down the track. That's right. 2020, I think, is it's hard to argue the share market would start anticipating a 2020 recession way back in 2018. The share market uh, normally only looks about five months ahead. Um, 
So I think, yes, there could be a recession in 2020, but it's it's still too early for investors to get too concerned about it. Um, I, I too, you know, if you go back over the last few years, I too thought, well, an obvious time for a recession was 2020. Um, it would take that long for the excesses in the US economy to build up such that it would be consistent with a recession coming in that year. But the problem is that the excesses haven't built up and last year's uh, uncertainty created a bit of a setback. You, you're seeing slower confidence and slower growth in the US. We haven't got anything like a housing boom going on. We haven't got anything like a, a business investment boom. Uh, consumer spending has picked up, but the savings rate is still still pretty uh, decent. Um, and you haven't got a major inflation problem. So we're still not at a point where you'd say the excesses have built up such that uh, 2020 would definitely have a recession. The other complication with 2020 is that that's a presidential election year, and you know it's it's hard to see Trump. You know, well, the bottom line is I think he would try and avoid letting things get too negative, um, such that you had a recession in 2020 because he knows he wouldn't get re-elected if that was the case. So that means he has to try and resolve these issues that were weighing on investor and economic confidence and those issues being trade, uh, the shutdown um, and those sorts of things and therefore try and get more positive sentiment returning again um, to keep the economy going. So I, I kind of think, yeah, it could be a recession in 2020, but it's more likely a little bit beyond that and therefore that's too far away for the share market to discount now. Well, Shane Oliver, that's certainly good news for investors and thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. Great to be back for the year. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australia's financial industry faces tougher regulation and more scrutiny of pay and culture after the government accepted key recommendations from a year-long inquiry into decades of scandals and misconduct. Commissioner Kenneth Haynes' final report and the government's support for all 76 recommendations leaves some parts of the financial sector at risk of being effectively legislated out of existence. In 76 recommendations, Commissioner Kenneth Hayne urges the securities regulator to consider court action as a first option. But in a win for the banks, he stops short of calling for them to be forcibly broken up to stop them offering financial advice and wealth management. That's good news for the likes of AMP and IOOF. Mr Hayne's report was scathing of the sales culture that resulted in poor customer outcomes and recommended dramatic changes to the payment of mortgage brokers and financial planners that would see many leave the industry, as well as a major overhaul of insurance sales practices, especially for funeral cover. The Commissioner also referred several institutions to the corporate regulator for possible criminal charges around the fees-for-no-service scandal, but declined to name the names of individuals or companies that might face prosecution. Providing a service to customers was relegated to second place, Sales became all-important, the Commissioner lamented. Rewarding misconduct is wrong, yet incentive, bonus and commission schemes throughout the financial services industry have measured sales and profit, but not compliance with the law and proper standards. The report is being released into a febrile political climate, with elections expected in May. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has moved quickly to take the initiative, saying he will act on all 76 recommendations. That steals much of the opposition Labor Party's thunder. Frydenberg's opposite number, Chris Bowen, has been critical of the government for not holding the banking sector to account and had already said he'd adopt Haynes' recommendations in full. 
Labor is odds on favourite to win the elections and return to office for the first time since 2013. A key area for change is conflicted remuneration. That is where financial professionals are paid commissions for selling clients' products, even though they may not be in the client's best interests. To that end, Mr Hayne recommended first a ban on trailing commissions to mortgage brokers. Next, he wants a ban on banks paying any commissions to brokers, as well as an obligation for brokers to act in their clients' best interests, to be rolled out within two to three years. But with more than half full home loans now written through brokers and many smaller financial institutions relying on them for almost all their loan origination, the government has adopted a watered-down version of this recommendation. While it proposed brokers be subjected to a best interest duty and for trailing commissions and other inappropriate forms of lender paid commission to be banned from the 1st of July 2020, the government is planning for review in 2023 about whether upfront commissions should be removed and brokers move to a borrower pay system. It has also stopped short of adopting a user pays recommendation where borrowers, not lenders, should pay mortgage brokers a fee for acting in connection with home lending. Banking industry codes of conduct will be expanded to cover more financial service providers and ASIC would be given a greater role in approving and enforcing the codes. Remuneration for bank and lending staff would be overhauled and APRA-regulated institutions would be required to change their bonus and remuneration structures to, in Haynes' word, encourage sound management of non-financial risks and to reduce the risk of misconduct. Boards would be required to regularly assess the effectiveness of remuneration schemes and set limits on the use of financial metrics for long-term bonuses. Financial advisors would be required to tell all retail customers simply and concisely why the advisor is not independent, impartial and unbiased. Providers of financial advice would be required to investigate misconduct where it's detected before advising and remediating all those affected as soon as possible. A single, centralised disciplinary body would be established for advisors and all financial advisors would be required to register. Providers of financial advice would be compelled to report serious misdeeds. Haynes said charging customers for financial advice that was never provided was motivated simply by, in his words, greed, greed by licensees and greed by advisors. Individuals can be prosecuted and the offences attract possible jail terms of 10 years. Hain has recommended significant changes to prevent banks from charging fees for no service. Banks would be required to get consent from its customer each year to charge them fees for service and record in written form what those services are. Banks will better take into account the needs of customers in remote areas and those without English language skills, while a national mediation scheme will be set up to help farmers struggling to pay back loans. Hain recommended 24 cases of misconduct be referred to the financial regulators for consideration of civil or criminal action. The referrals involve almost all of the major banks except Westpac. ASIC says it has prioritised the cases but would not comment in further detail. Hain also revealed he wrote to the corporate regulator late last year to invite them to consider whether criminal or other legal proceedings should be taken against unnamed banks involved in the fees-for-no-service scandal in which customers were knowingly charged for financial advice they never received. AMP, ANZ, CBA, NAB and Westpac are already expected to pay $850 million in remediation over the scandal. He thinks the industry needs a complete overhaul. No surprise there. The interim report pointed to that late last year. Hain has identified six norms of conduct. The law must be applied and its application enforced. Industry codes should be approved under statute and breach of promises made to customers in the codes should be a breach of statute. No financial product should be hawked to retail clients. 
intermediaries should act only on behalf of and in the interests of the party who pay the intermediary. Exceptions to the ban on conflicted remuneration should be eliminated. Culture and government practices, including remuneration arrangements, both within the industry generally and individual entities, must focus on non-financial risks as well as financial risks. The final report of the Commission has also recommended a regulator of the regulators, urging the government to set up a new body that will track and assess the performance of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission and the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. The body would report to the Minister biennially. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission gets a particularly strong knuckle rap for its enforcement activities, or more accurately, its reluctance in using its enforcement power. Hain flagged the potential for ASIC's role to be limited to one of investigation and referral, leaving court action to a new and separate specialist civil enforcement agency. He stopped short of recommending such a body, and the Coalition has already ruled it out. Commissioner Hain has also recommended ASIC's role in relation to the regulation of superannuation be clarified to make it clear it is responsible for enforcing breaches of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act after finding neither financial regulator was enforcing the Act properly. Both ASIC and APRA will be subject to four-year reviews to assess each agency's capabilities. The recently created Customer Bank Dispute Resolution Body the Australian Financial Complaints Authority has also been recommended to have new powers to publicly publish the remediation activities of the banks. ASIC has also been recommended to rely far less on its softer powers, including doing away with its preference for reaching negotiated and agreed outcomes with the banks through infringement notices or enforceable undertakings. And it might be time to start buying banks again. Australia's big four banks gained more than $20 billion in value after relieved investors welcomed Kenneth Haynes' Royal Commission's recommendations. As the threat of forced breakups and the demand for tighter lending that threatened to crush profits didn't eventuate. They drove the financial sector to what looked like its best day in a decade. Shares in Commonwealth Bank, ANZ, NAB and Westpac all gained more than 5% on Tuesday, with Westpac rising as much as 8.08% after Commissioner Haynes slammed their culture but stopped short of recommending the big banks be dismantled. However, ASX-listed mortgage brokers, Mortgage Choice and Australian Finance Group have been smashed as they will be subjected to a best interest duty and the government said it will move to ban trailing commissions from July 2020. And in other news, the RBA kept its cash rate on hold at 1.5%, a move widely expected by the market, but it was less confident about Australia's economic outlook flagging downgrades to its GDP growth forecast and warning that downside risks have increased. And not surprisingly, many commentators are now saying the RBA will cut interest rates later this year, after the election. Retailers had their worst Christmas, with Australia's retail sales falling heavily in December, rounding off what was another weak quarter of spending at the shops. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, retail turnover tumbled by 0.4% after seasonal adjustments missing expectations for an unchanged reading from a month earlier. And figures from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries also point to the sharp slowdown in the economy, with almost 82,000 cars sold in January, a 7.4% drop on the same month last year. Over the past six months, sales have edged down by 7% compared to the same six-month period in 2017. And in another bad sign for Australia's housing market, building approvals have tanked, falling 8.4%. Approvals were 23% lower than a year ago. The number of dwelling approvals in the three months to December is down 11% on the September quarter and 24% on the same quarter a year ago. 
A very sharp decline in residential building activity looks set for 2019, notwithstanding the large amount of work yet to be done. The value of non-residential approvals was also down sharply in the month, although that was only off 4.1% for the quarter. Still, non-residential approvals for the quarter were 15.2% below a year ago, and ANZ job ads fell 1.7% in January and were 3.7% below the January 2018 level. This is the first annual decline since April 2015. And one of Australia's biggest coal export terminals, Abbott Point, has been closed due to the Townsville floods, with concerns the monsoon-like conditions will move further south and affect coal production in the Bowen Basin. With heavy rain still bucketing down on the North Queensland capital, the Ross River Dam reached 224.5% capacity, with the local council continuing to release overflow water to avoid a dam collapse. Abbott Point Coil Terminal, south of Townsville near Bowen, has been shut, with heavy rain and winds making it impossible to export coal to waiting ships off the coast. And the Insurance Council of Australia is expecting the natural disaster will result in claims that run into the tens of millions of dollars. And the Commonwealth Bank has reported a 6% fall in its net profit hit by the costs associated with fixing historic misconduct issues and tighter margins due to competition and rising costs. First half profit came in at $4.6 billion. That's down from $4.9 billion in the corresponding period last year. Cash profit, the bank's preferred measure that strips out one-off gains and losses, edged up 1.7% to $4.68 billion, with higher sales volumes of loans offset by lower margins. And that result was slightly below market expectations. An insurer, IAG, said its net profit fell 9.3% to $500 million in the six months to December 31st, down from $551 million in the year earlier period. The insurer said it was cutting its interim dividend to $0.12 cents per share. Profit before income tax from continuing operations plummeted 45% to $441 million from $789 million in the year earlier period. And Boral has warned on annual profits hurt by heavy rain in the US and along Australia's east coast, while also citing delays to major projects at home. Boral said it now expects annual earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation, or EBITDA, from its Australian operations in the year through to June, to be broadly and similar to the 2018 fiscal year. That forecast, which includes property profits, is down from prior guidance for growth in the high single digits. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with Adam Bremo, the co-founder of online social learning platform, Open Learning. Open Learning's unique social interactive approach to learning has been adopted with great success by leading institutions and government bodies around the world. Open Learning has had significant international traction thanks to its innovative model of online learning that's focused on student engagement and fostering vibrant learning communities in courses. Open Learning currently supports over 1,500,000 students across 5,000 courses, with thousands more joining every week. I'll also be talking to economist Jonathan Boymel about what's happening in Australia's housing market and how it's affecting the economy. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care. Be good and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 